From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. We're about to speak with Angela Harrell. She's Chief Diversity and Corporate Impact Officer at Voya Financial. And she's here to talk about corporate diversity initiatives and challenges to these goals in recent years. So Angela, can you just start us off by talking a little bit about what is Voya Financial and what are the DEI initiatives that you're working on now? Absolutely. Hello, and so happy to join you. So Voya Financial, uh, we are an organization that is focused on uh, the health and financial well-being um, of our clients. So think retirement plans, think employee benefits, uh, think pension funds. Uh, we also have an asset manager management business. Um, from a diversity, equity, and inclusion perspective, um, what we seek to do is to look both inside and outside um, to ensure that we are reflecting who we serve, uh, providing uh, a workplace where folks can show up and be themselves, um, be valued, embraced for all the differences that they have, um, and serve our clients because they reflect our clients. Um, so they can better understand the diverse needs uh, in the marketplace because they look like the marketplace. You know, it's a very interesting time for DEI initiatives in the wake of last year's Supreme Court ruling ending affirmative action. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you're coping with this. You know, what kinds of legal advice in particular are you getting on maintaining DEI programs? Well, you know, the good thing, Jen, is we're all diverse. Um, that's one of the things that I always talk to people about. Diversity isn't about those people there. Um, everything about us, our background, where we're from, uh, our economic status. Uh, it's not just gender, it's not just race. Of course, those things are part of it as well. Um, and so we really have always thought about diversity in terms of the differences that we're born with and those that we acquire throughout our lifetimes. And so for that very reason, that's all of us. Now, we do look at who's not around the table, who's not being represented. Um, and we have been very clear about continuing to make sure that we have all voices around the table and that the voices are actually heard because that actually makes for better business. It makes for better business decisions. Um, and it means that we can actually address the diverse needs of the market. And we so although there have been headwinds um, in terms of, you know, there being perhaps more of a political focus, uh, this is about people. Uh, is what I always say. And this is about how we serve well. 
Um, let's talk about challenges ahead for diversity. We had the results of the Iowa caucuses. Clearly, Donald Trump is the front runner in his party. What would a, a, a Trump presidency, another Trump presidency, uh, mean on the diversity front? You know, I have always believed in the understanding of all of the very special dynamic um, that diversity brings. Um, I, I, I often joke with, with colleagues and say, you know, although you're an amazing individual, we don't want to have six or seven of you around the table because how then do we challenge each other? How then do we force each other uh, to think differently um, and to solve complex issues and problems? And so for me, regardless of, you know, who might be in office, um, I think that that understanding um, of the value of bringing diverse perspectives and thoughts into the room uh, to solve some of the world's most critical issues will prevail. Can you talk a little bit about the programs that you're working on at Voya? You've got pers- you've got a lot of focus on personal finance and yeah. financial education. Can you talk yes. a little bit about how those are playing out? You, I, you do a lot of work across a range of diverse communities. Absolutely. So we very much focus, in addition to to my corporate hat, I also run our foundation. Uh, And so financial resilience is what we focus on there. Voya's purpose is to fight for everyone's opportunity for a better financial future. That comes through in terms of many of the programs that we have. Um, One that is near and dear to my heart is called the National Personal Finance Challenge. Think national spelling bee, but for financial services. Um, We have about 15,000 students that participate in this program run by a nonprofit partner called Council for Economic Education. These kids compete locally and then regionally and then nationally, uh, putting together a financial plan for a fictitious family. So imagine being in a room with 200 kids. This was the finals at the Federal Reserve Bank in Cleveland last year. 200 kids talking about HSAs health savings accounts, talking about 401ks, talking about whole versus term life, they've got to put together a plan in two hours for a family. They're talking about things. They understand things through the curricula that they've learned that adults don't know, that grown people don't have any idea about. And so how do we get to young people early? Um, How do we make financial literacy fun? Um, And how do we give them the skills to actually make sound financial decisions Um, that will lead them to job security. We infuse diversity into this program because when we first started, uh, we were first asked to become the title sponsor five years ago. We noticed that there wasn't as much representation in terms of the U.S. population in the room. So we specifically now make sure to recruit at Title I schools where the majority of kids are on free or reduced lunches. We have all girls teams, uh, which has amplified the number of women. Uh, young ladies that are in the program. We went from, uh, you know, 30% people of color five years ago to 51%, 35% girls to now 46% girls competing. It's making a meaningful difference in their lives and in their communities and in their families. Do you know, we just have a minute left. There's something I, re- I would love to talk to you a bit more about this, but unfortunately there was one other question I was very interested in asking you. Could you yes. tell us quickly, Going back to what you were discussing earlier about the the landscape now that we're looking at, how do you think about hiring and how do you give advice about what kind of hiring people can, what kind of hiring practices are best for people 
in this environment. Only about 30 seconds best, there. Best hiring practice, always hire the most qualified candidate and always think about how diverse and wide you can make that pool. Angela, a pleasure. It was uh, great to talk to you. Appreciate it. Angela Harrell, the Chief Diversity and Corporate Impact Officer at Voya Financial. Corporate diversity. I guess we're making progress, but still have a ways to go. It's certainly a very big focus for a lot of companies, and I'm on the equality team as an editor at Bloomberg, and I can tell you, like, there's a lot of interest in our stories. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk financials now. Goldman Sachs, uh, Morgan Stanley posting earnings, Jen, that beat analyst estimates in some of the key business areas. So let's take a deeper dive now with Chris Whalen. He's the chairman at Whalen Global Advisors. Good to see you again, Chris. Um, hey, John. Hey, Jennifer. First impressions of the earnings so far from the big banks? I think Bork and Stanley is the best of it so far, uh, both in terms of earnings and, and revenue. Uh, most of the other banks showed a lot of weakness going into the fourth quarter. Jamie Dimon, for example, uh, record year, uh, went past the record uh, earnings in 21, but fourth quarter was single digits. And what that means is uh, I think the industry is going to have another down quarter. This is five quarters in a row of down earnings. So, you know, it's just part of working our way through the last few years of the Fed and everything else. Uh, I think you're going to see the Fed end portfolio shrinkage soon. And that means they're going to want to push reserves up and push bank deposits up. So... You know, not well, bad. That, or, how much gone, equity but, capital do they? Is that a concern at this point? No, they, they're facing market risk, John. It has nothing to do with equity capital unless you're going to sell these securities and write off the loss. You know, think about it this way: Ginnie Mae threes are around ninety today. So if a bank wants to get rid of them and go buy something with twice the yield, they still have to lose ten points on the sale. And I think that's still the problem facing a lot of banks. They have assets from 20 and 21 that are, you know, yielding down in threes, and they should be selling and getting out. Uh, Jamie Dimon has done that very uh, astutely. He's taken losses every quarter because he can. He makes a lot of money. Uh, but other banks, not so much. And I think you're going to see commercial losses this year, which are going to probably be the headline for banks. Not consumer, really. Consumer is still very quiet. I guess one thing I wonder, though, is if we do indeed get Fed rate cuts coming as soon as March, how will that help the picture for banks? On commercial real estate, not at all, because these are very idiosyncratic situations. They're all different. Um, it's not going to help if you've got an office building in downtown Chicago that's not cash flowing. Um, I don't think you're going to see rate cuts in March, to be honest. I think the Fed will stop shrinkage of the portfolio. They'll start reinvesting the runoff from the portfolio. 
we may not get an actual Fed funds cut until later in the year. So I think that's why financials are selling off today after Waller's comments and some other bits so, and pieces. Chris, what, you know, what does that think, do to the net interest margins then? What uh, What's the expectation uh, there? Well, yields have been rising very briskly along with funding costs in the past year, but now they've slowed. So what I'm thinking is that we may not see that much headroom. You see all the bond issuance that you guys have been reporting at Bloomberg? Investors are taking that paper as fast as they can get it because I think they realize that rates may be going down. Now, I still think that the Treasury's refunding and the huge cash needs that they have this year is going to pull a long end up eventually, John. That's going to be the surprise, the normal yield curve that we haven't seen in a long time. Uh, and I think that is the big question mark in my mind going forward. Short-term rates will probably go down. I, I think that's a fair bet. But it may go down initially because the Fed is just changing their policy on the balance sheet. They're going to be reinvesting those T-bills back into more T-bills, and it'll pull rates down. So I guess what do you think from a business perspective is going to be the bright spot for banks going forward? We saw in the Goldman Sachs and in the Morgan Stanley earnings reports this morning a focus on the wealth divisions. Yeah, wealth is definitely one of the better uh, things to own, obviously, if you compare City with Morgan Stanley. Morgan Stanley was the winner there. Uh, City does not have that component at all. So that's one of their problems. Um, I think the transactional banks, Goldman, they did pretty well on the trading side this quarter, uh, will be okay. Credit is the issue for big commercial banks, both in terms of commercial real estate, related business exposures, and then thirdly, consumers. We're all waiting for consumers. But, you know, like I say, credit cards, prime auto, by banks is still not that bad. If you look at subprime auto, if you look at lower FICO uh, borrowers in the FHA market, the delinquencies are much higher. And I think that's what people are worried about. They look at that bottom third, bottom quarter of the credit stack, which is definitely seeing stress, but the rest of it, not so much. Yeah, so you, it's, a, you it's, mentioned, it's a weird picture. You mentioned consumers, and I think I'm safe, Ian, saying that overall uh, pretty healthy at this point. Yeah. Except when you look at the, uh, the, the there is stress on uh, the lower level, I'll call it. The deposit balances, are, do they have less of a, a cushion? Well, if you're a commercial bank, a smaller bank, and you've got big losses on your commercial real estate loans, and just commercial in general, you know, you're missing deposits right now. Because if you had to sell those loans, you would take a loss. I think that's what's worrying the Fed. They're, they almost want to force deposits into the system to try and forestall some bank failures this year. And I do think you will see more bank failures this year related to commercial real estate. But just to go back to the consumer point, I mean, one point that seems to me to be pretty positive is the employment levels are still really, really strong. Oh, uh, and I would have thought, yeah. you know, from the bank perspective, that could have given them some confidence. But I feel like you're a bit more negative on that. Well, consumers are not a pain point for banks right now at all. I mean, if you look at residential mortgages, default rates, net default rates are still negative. In other words, they can't lose money on, on one to four family loans. So if you're looking for problems for banks, it's not where it was last time in 2008. It's in commercial. It's much more like the 70s, the oil patch in Texas. That's what we're facing. You have a whole class of office buildings out there that people don't want anymore. This is a huge problem. We have to redevelop parts of New York City. Look at Third Avenue. 
Nobody wants those buildings from 34th Street up to the 50th. I can't get up 3rd Avenue in my car anymore. <laughs> no, they took out the bus lanes. It's forgetting. Oh. Triple parking. You're not Don't supposed to drive in New York. You're yeah, supposed right. to be healthy, walking. <laughs> um, before I let you go, J.P. Morgan, we'll get back to that. Uh, do they manage now to uh, sort of a, a different standard because they're so darn big at this point? Are they too big? Well, they have enormous mass. You're right. And Jamie could run that bank on interest, uh, non-interest income. In other words, if you had a horrible recession, he could literally run the bank on fee income and devote all of his interest earnings to loss mitigation. Why does this man need more capital? Obviously, he doesn't. But the regulators, you know, I, I, the way I look at Jamie is he's a small country. He has so much liquidity inside that bank. And they also are very astute at managing market risk and duration, unlike some of the other banks. Compare them with Bank America, which has retained everything from 2020 and 21. Huge mistake. So I, I think Jamie's just, he, he runs a better bank. They're very nimble, and they have all of that interest earning, uh, non-interest side from the investment business, the mutual funds, everything else. It's, a, it's like a small country. Uh, then switch over to Jane Frazier, if uh, you could. Uh, Citigroup, sure. is that a completely different institution now? Got about a minute left. No, I, I think Jane, frankly, in a falling rate environment, she should break the bank up and sell it. I just don't see any way for her to fix the business model deficiencies, which basically is Smith Barney. They sold Smith Barney to Gorman. He paid for it. Everybody criticized him at the time, but Gorman was right. So Jane has a two-legged stool, and unless she can merge that business with somebody who's got a big investment book and give her some more stability, then I don't know why they're here. I wrote a piece about this on the blog over the weekend. And we'll leave it there. Good luck getting up. Th I'm still driving. I'm not walking up 3rd Avenue. Forget that. Chris, always a pleasure. Good to see you. Uh, Chairman of uh, Whaling Global Advisors breaking down some of the bank earnings that we got today. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's get the big picture view of markets now. Brad Bernstein, Managing Director at UBS Private Wealth Management, joins us. Good to see you. Thanks for being with us. Appreciate it, Brad. Thank is you the, so much uh, for having me. Is the Fed still pretty much in the driver's seat for, for markets and risk assets in particular? Oh, I, I, I agree with you. Yeah, I, I think so. I think, uh, you know, right now what we're seeing is some some uh, walking back a little bit from the Fed. But where, where we are, we're strongly in the soft landing camp this year. We uh, just changed our projections for Fed cuts this year. We see four, not three. We were at three um, recently, uh, starting in May, four quarters this year. Um, you know, and we, we think uh, markets look pretty good this year uh, with the backing of the Fed changing from, from last year. So what's the advice for investors at this point? Uh, right now, we're advising our clients to add to their to diversified balanced portfolios. We really like the bond market here and we like the stock market. We just upped our target also on the S&P for the year at about 5,000. So we we see modest you know, appreciation from these levels. Keep in mind, we were up 10 out of the last 11 weeks. So we probably pulled forward a lot of the year's returns um, in the last couple of months coming into the new year. 
Um, in a deflationary or disinflationary environment, mm-hmm. is that necessarily good for company earnings, uh, especially with the respect to the top line and margins? So we're actually thinking earnings are going to pick up this year. So for the quarter that just began to the fourth quarter, we're seeing four to five percent year-over-year earnings growth. And for the year, we still see eight uh, percent earnings growth, about two hundred and forty dollars per share on the S and P this year. Uh, why? You know, we're in that soft landing camp, as I mentioned. Uh, we we think growth will come down slightly below trend. We we think inflation will get to central banks' targets, two to two and a half percent second half, and and earnings will be better than. Than I think a lot of people think, and and that's why we're saying uh, 5,000 S&P year end, 240 this year, um, you know, and 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 you know, markets look pretty pretty decent at these levels, but you know, we, we think we think the bond market looks extremely good at these levels. Can I? Can you dig a little bit into your sector calls for equities, and in particular, can you talk about tech? Where do you see that headed this year? So tech is our preferred sector for 24 coming into the year. We see the best earnings growth of all the sectors globally is in tech. Why? AI. AI beneficiaries are going to benefit the most uh, from from growth. Specifically within tech, we like semis and we like software. Um, Also, we're uh, we're adding a modest overweight right now to small cap. Why? uh, Why small cap? Multiple reasons. Number one, um, for the first time in a few years, we think it can outperform large. Why? Because um, they are going to be one of the better beneficiaries of declining rates. Uh, they're more levered to to borrowing than large companies, clearly. Also, the valuation compared to large hasn't been this compelling in, in a long time. And they, the small cap asset class was really impacted by the regional banking crisis we had in the spring and these that you know that that has hurt the the index and it's still off 10 to 15 percent since march of last year so so we think there's a lot of reasons why small cap could actually outperform large cap this year you also mentioned bonds what the 10 year 4.03 percent i mean i jen and i missed the boat at five percent but just over four percent is that still a screaming buy yeah Yes, November was the best month for bonds since the 1980s, uh, right? After after bonds being terrible for a year and a half, we see the 10-year getting a three and a half by the end of the year. So we really like the bond market. We think the risk reward looks outstanding. Uh, the conversations we're having right now with clients are, you know, everyone has too much in cash these days. Cash yields are going to decline as the Fed cuts. We see four cuts, as I said. So that five-something money market will be four-something by the end of the year, maybe three-something next year. And yet there's opportunity to lock in duration. So for the ask, for the for the liquid cash that's sitting in money markets that shouldn't be, it is it is still time to get in and there's still upside in, in, in the bond market, not to mention locking in locking in yields that won't be available six to twelve months from now. He sounds like a 60-40 guy, are you? What's what's your allocation? What's the ideal um, allocation if I'm your client? It depends on you, the client, right? So we're agnostic when it comes to the strategic allocation of a portfolio. It's always about the client's goals and objectives. It's always about what the, the goals are for the portfolio. That dictates what the allocation will look like. Um, but yeah, we believe at, at a high level in diversification and owning um, you know, broad diversity within a portfolio, such as small, mid, large caps, and then overweighting areas within those areas. And then within fixed income, we like duration here. 
specifically to get into more detail, municipals, high quality investment grade, uh, and CMBS is here. What's the biggest risk to your outlook? Is it geopolitical risks? Is it the Fed not proceeding as you expect? I think number one would be the Fed disappointing uh, and not delivering what the markets really hope. Now, obviously, right now, the Fed, I I think the market's ahead of the Fed a little bit. I think we're not going to get six cuts. We'll probably get four. That's what we're projecting. Um, And I think the markets will be fine in that scenario. But if we get two or less cuts, I think the markets would not be happy about that. And then obviously overnight we saw, um, you know, some escalation globally with some geopolitical risks. Hopefully those don't get worse as long as, as I think, you know, um, geopolitical risks don't get much worse uh, with the United States, uh, you know, our military and oil being impacted, I think um, we'll be fine as well. And that's our base case that that won't happen. Uh, always a pleasure. Brad Bernstein, Managing Director at UBS Private Wealth Management. Just to recap, so year-end, 5,000 S&P 500, four rate cuts from the Federal Reserve in May, and earnings growth of something like, what, 4 to 5%. Always good to talk to you, Brad. Thanks very much. We appreciate it. The countdown has begun. This May, a 1,000 global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Well, let's bring in our next guest to look at uh, the markets. Mike Mullaney is Director of Global Markets Research for Boston Partners. He's got the shades closed behind him, so I don't know where he is. I'm guessing Boston, right? Did you get snow? And it's snowing outside still here. So, all right. Well, it's let up. So maybe you'll get some relief in a couple of hours. Uh, Are you a sixty forty guy at this point? Yeah, we would be definitely. Actually, we we have a still a smattering of bench uh, balanced accounts here at Boston Partners, and uh, the balanced neutral ratio is fifty fifty. And currently, we're at fifty five forty five stocks to bonds. So we are still leaning towards. uh, uh, overweight stocks versus bonds in our portfolios. So tell me, what's your take on what the Fed's next move is, and more importantly, when it's going to come? Well, I thought, you know, Waller today was less dovish than obviously the market anticipated. And that's, I think that's why we're seeing the negative action in the Treasury market, which is spilling over now to the equity market. And um, we're not in the camp that it's going to be a March cu- a cut. We just think that's too early because haven't seen, I guess you can say, sustained improvement on the core PCE that would be necessary to be more aggressive on cuts. Doesn't mean they don't cut, you know, three times or perhaps four times in 2024, but we think it's later in the year as compared to starting in March. All right, but still um, the trajectory is a disinflationary path or outright deflation in some sectors, I would imagine. How does that add up for, uh, for earnings? Uh, I go back actually to a macro standpoint on earnings, and earnings I do based upon if you do a trickle-down effect, you start with nominal GDP, then you look at uh, revenues of the S&P 500, and you wind up with earnings. 
And the, the quandary that we have for 2024 is nominal GDP is supposed to drop from 6.5% in 2023 to about 3.5% in 2024. Yet revenue growth is supposed to be in the you know mid to you know mid teens going forward for 2024, and there's a 99% correlation between nominal GDP and revenues of the S&P 500. So you got two things going potentially in the opposite direction, which is somewhat confounding to us. And if you continue that, earnings are very much linked towards uh, revenue. There's about a 97% between. Uh, S&P 500 earnings and S&P 500 revenue. So if revenue is going to slow, which is what we think the case is going to be, we don't think it's going to be as, as high as probably what the, uh, the analysts are forecasting or the strategists are forecasting right now, then we do think there's probably going to be some pressure on earnings not to attain that 11.8% uh, growth for 2024, which is the current consensus forecast for the S&P 500. We think it's going to be something less than that. So do companies have the wherewithal to weather that kind of slowdown, you know, without taking measures such as shedding some jobs? Uh, we're beginning to see jobs being shed, especially in the larger corporations. You know, the announced layoffs now that are coming in more in a, 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 a fevered pace. Um, that wouldn't surprise us to see that continuing in 2024. You know, obviously Citigroup last week, um, you know, stating they're going to cut, you know, 20,000 employees during the course of this year, or the next couple of years. Um, we think that's probably going to be more the norm because I think first and foremost, what's going to happen is that companies are going to try to protect their profit margins, uh, which are very high right now, but they are getting pressure from wages. Wages have remained sticky at a high level. And that is beginning to erode some of the prospects for profit margin expansion, obviously, in 2024, and maybe cause some contraction in 2024, which ultimately will, will impact uh, will impact earnings. Uh, if you can't talk individual stocks, um, what about sectors? What, what do you like? Uh, you know, you have to still like tech. Um, if you look at where the earnings growth is supposed to be in 2024, Tech is still coming in in second place, and you know you don't want to change chase the uh, you know necessarily some of the multiples of the magnificent seven, but uh, you know other companies in that sector still are priced at reasonable levels. So I think tech is still a place to be, and you may want to try to barbell it. Um, if you do see kind of a a no landing scenario for the economy. And we think it's almost a jump call between recession and no landing, quite frankly. But if you do see a no landing, then some of the cyclical sectors probably do better. <clears throat> Earnings, I mean, excuse me, energy has been beaten down badly, um, and deservedly so based upon the, the weakness in energy prices. But they have, once again, a negative prospect for earnings per share growth for 2024. And based upon what you just said, given what's going on in the, in the Middle East right now, you might see some firming of energy prices just on geopolitical risk. And if that's the case, you'll see the earnings come through better for energy companies in 2024. So that would be a typical kind of barbell, tech and, and energy, and play, uh, and play both sides of the card. What is your take on how the U.S. election will play into things in the second half of the year? Uh, you know, the, it, that's a really good question. So generally, the market's pretty choppy in the first half of the year, particularly in the first quarter in an election year. Um, and you see that until you get more definitive, um, you know, kind of vision as to who the candidates are going to be and what their, their platforms are uh, into the election. 
my my guess is right now, you know, you got to think that once again, Donald Trump would be the favorite right now, based upon either polls or the betting markets right now. Uh, you know, Trump is ahead of is ahead of Biden. Um, we see probably the market doing well uh, if that's the case, because the market seems to like obviously a reduction in taxes, which is what you know Trump has obviously uh, uh, championed in the past. Um, but I'm not so sure after the election with some of the things that he's put forth as far as his next administration, what he intends to do, are going to play all that well in the market continuing into 2025. But mm -hmm. I would guess that the market would be relatively firm going into the election and just out of the election as well. All right. Conventional wisdom dictates the Fed stays away from politics, so stays away from any sort of uh, decision around election time. I think you said, what, March is too early. So when when do they act? Well, you know, I would imagine they're going to try to do it around when they're releasing statements, uh, formal statements in their in the summary of economic projections. So I would put it probably out the we'd have it at the June meeting. It starts with June. And they could go every meeting after that if they continue to get the kind of progress on core PCE that they've seen so far. The six month annual annualized rate right now is basically pretty close to what their target is. Um, so if they continue to see that kind of progress, I think you could see them go every meeting once they start in June, um, albeit unless we don't get a, if we don't get a reacceleration in inflation, which is still a little bit of a wild card because, uh, quite frankly, if you look at Supercore PCE, which is one of you know Chairman Powell's favorite indicators, that's still very sticky at a high level, and it's very much influenced by wages, and wages are showing no sign right now, basically, of, of collapsing at this juncture. Wages are not collapsing, and the labor market's quite strong. So where does that leave us with the outlook for consumer spending? You know, I wonder how rich consumers are feeling. They're just coming off the holidays and a massive spending binge, which looking at my gift haul was not what I had expected. But still, you, you know, saying? I know, I know. But, you know, you could think that, you know, they're going to be pulling back a little bit. I think it's very bifurcated. Um, I think that, you know, the upper echelons, whether it be the top quintile or the top 40% of wage earners are going to be perfectly fine. Uh, but the bottom 20%, the bottom quintile definitely is beginning, beginning to struggle right now. If you look at uh, delinquencies and defaults and the increase in, you know, credit card uh, balances, it seems to me that they're beginning to borrow to maintain lifestyle. So I would think that the lower quintile is going to be basically in a somewhat of a struggling situation. That's more goods related than it is services related. The upper two quintiles obviously uh, are going to continue to spend on services. I think they're going to continue to spend on experiences in 2024, much like they did in the you know mid to latter part of 2023. All right, Mike, thanks. Appreciate it. Uh, Mike Mullaney from Boston, Director of Global Markets uh, for Boston Research. Global Markets Research, I should say. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, 
Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.